a friend sent me a YouTube link recently. It was showing a video from around this past Christmas season. And in the video, uh, it's taken by a home security camera of a UPS driver who comes to the front door of a house during the day, knocks on the door, there's no answer. So he leaves the package, which was a new iPhone 10, behind a planter. But later that same evening, the driver returns wearing different clothes and takes the iPhone 10. Then he heads off, not realizing that all this was caught on a security camera. And he's later arrested for grand theft. And grand theft is a category usually reserved for stuff like cars and boats. So it tells you how expensive an iPhone 10 is. <laughs> now, to be fair on this, you can find other videos of FedEx and pure later drivers stealing stuff. So I'm not here to criticize UPS. But this is why I bring all this up. It makes you wonder, what happened? What was going on in the hours after this driver first made the delivery? Kind of what back and forth, what internal conversations or arguments, struggles, justifications went on in this guy's mind? You know, it might not be about stealing an iPhone, but each of us knows those kind of internal conversations, wrestlings, don't we? The pull of some temptation. Again, we have no clue what all was involved in what this guy was doing, what was going on internally in him. But we do know this, that scripture does describe a spiritual battle that actually takes place in the world in which we live. And that's why we're walking through this teaching series called Spiritual Warfare and just considering together what does God's word claim and teach us about this spiritual battle that it tells us we actually walk in daily. And so here's the question today. So how do we battle in this fight? And specifically, how do we battle against the temptations that we face? Today, before we come to communion, I want to look at this together, and I want to look at, for one, three promises for us as we battle temptation, and then three encouragements for the battle. Now, the three promises, we're going to move through that fairly quickly, but I just want us to at least see those. And then we're going to give some more time to the three encouragements together, all right? So let's start with the promises. And to that end, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And just to give some context for what's going on here, the Apostle Paul here has just been writing to the church in Corinth, and he's been listing just a number of ways that the people of Israel fell into sin, gave into temptations of, for example, like idolatry, putting something ahead of God in their lives, of sexual sin, of ignoring God in their lives, and even of grumbling against God. And so after reviewing all of this, Paul reminds and exhorts the Corinthians with these words. 1 Corinthians 10, and as we hear this, remember, this is the word of God. And Paul wrote in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That you may be able to endure 
the temptation. Now what Paul is saying here, and that word temptation, it's in, in the original Greek, it's a word pirasmos. You want to say it with me? Parasmos. What it literally means, it just means an enticing, a, a wooing, a tempting towards disobedience. That's what Paul is speaking of. Actually, before we even continue in this, could, could we each do this? I, I just so want to make sure that this isn't just some vague, disconnected principles for us today. So could you bring to mind for you an area of temptation in your life that you commonly or consistently, maybe even currently, battle with? Could you bring that to mind for you? And, and what would that be in your area? Don't shout it out. What would it be for you? L let me just prompt you with some of what Scripture speaks of. Could it be the love of money that you're pulled towards? Or, or greed, bitterness, dishonesty or deceit, gossip, pride, maybe sexual sin, envy. That help at all? Oh, yeah, gossip. Okay, got mine. <laughs> what would be your area of just common temptation that you battle. And I just want you to keep that in mind, if you would, as we consider what the Apostle Paul writes here through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because three promises are given here that are helpful to remember any time we're battling temptation. So let's look at them. Here's the first promise, verse 13 again. No temptation has overtaken you, Paul says, that is not what? Say it with me. Common to man. Meaning any temptation, any temptation you face is common to man. Okay, what does that mean? For one, it reminds us of this. It reminds us that being tempted is not itself sinful, right? Temptation is unavoidable in this life. It is common to every one of us. Jesus himself was tempted, right? The temptation isn't the sin. Okay, but then Paul gives a second promise. Again, in verse 13, he says this. God is faithful, and he will not what? Read again with me. Let you be tempted beyond your ability. God is trustworthy. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability to resist that temptation. He is overseeing us in that kind of way. And again, as we're going to consider in a few minutes, the ability to resist, it's not just about kind of our self-effort or self-willingness. It's through the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we have within us. And I, I totally realize this. I realize at times it feels like you can't resist the temptation. I know it does. And that's where we need to hold on to this promise. And what this verse also tells us is that in this life, we will endure temptations. They'll be with us. And let's also be clear on this. It's not saying here that God is the one who is tempting us. Scripture tells us God tempts no one. In fact, James writes this, James 1.13, James writes to clarify for us. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, say it with me, tempts no one. Our God tempts no one. Then a third promise. Back in verse 13, Paul writes, God's faithful, he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, what will he provide? Let's read it. 
he will also provide the way of escape. Now that's a great encouragement, that every single time you're tempted, God will always provide some way of escape, some way in which you can move away from that temptation. So three promises to hold on to whenever you face temptation. And again, these promises, these assurances are given for us for a single encouraging purpose. Look at verse 13 as it says, all of this is so that you may be able to endure it. That you may be able to endure the temptation. God provides a way that you can stand up under it. So let me also add this though. Let's realize that not all of the temptation we face or experience comes from enemy forces. I mean, we can view it this way, from scripture. Scripture tells us that temptation in our lives comes predominantly from three sources. From the world, from our flesh, it says, and thirdly, from the enemy, from his forces. Okay, so meaning for one, meaning temptation can come for one from the world around us. Temptation can come from just stuff around us, stuff we see, stuff we hear, an approach to life that is so predominant around us of living life apart from God. All that can kind of woo us, entice us in this life. It can come from the world in that way. Temptation can also come, though, Scripture tells us, from within us, from our flesh, it says. And that just means that inclination within us to still live apart from what God desires for us in that spiritual sense, to kind of pull away from God. But no, there's also a physical dimension to this. In fact, medical studies have shown that even chemicals within us, like dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins, those can even draw us towards temptation, make it more enticing to us. Additionally, it's fascinating how the workings of various parts of our prefrontal cortex even can also have an impact on how we respond to certain temptations. So we're aware then that temptation can also come from our own flesh, kind of spiritually speaking, even physiologically in some ways. But Scripture is also very clear that at times temptation can come from the forces of evil that oppose us, that can seek to entrap, to misguide, to lure us away from the path of following Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he gives an interesting point of guidance when he writes to the church in Ephesus. This is in Ephesians chapter four. And, and Paul gives this guidance. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And what? Let's read it together. Give no opportunity to the devil. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Some translations say here, do not give the devil a foothold. What's he mean by that? In other words, Paul is saying here, think of this. When we become kind of comfortable with or toy with or casual with disobedience to God in our lives, it gives the enemy an opening an opportunity, you could call it a foothold in our lives with which to more greatly influence us. Sobering, isn't it? Okay, with that awareness and, and holding on to those three promises God's word gives us, we then ask, so how do we endure temptation? 
And we've talked about this a bit in previous weekends, but I, I want to touch on it again. And again today, this won't be comprehensive, but I just want to look at three of the encouragements that Scripture gives us for enduring temptation. Three encouragements. And the first really I'm just going to touch on briefly because it's fairly self-explanatory. And, and we receive it from the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. And this is what he wrote, 2 Timothy 2.22. Paul says, so flee youthful passions and instead pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What's the main exhortation? Flee. Okay, here's another Greek word. That word flee there in original Greek, fugo. Say it with me. Fugo. It, it, it's where fugo really, because the reality is what flee means, literally it means to run away, to vanish. That's what it's speaking of here. I mean, understand this way. That is, to put it another way, what Paul is saying here, if you're in a place or setting where you're facing great temptation, get out of there. Really, not meaning intellectually, I'm going to go to my happy place mentally. No, physically, remove yourself. Literally run away. I mean, a first encouragement for us in enduring temptation is this very simple one. Flee from the temptation. Can you read the phrase with me? Flee from the temptation. Meaning, if you're able, don't put yourself in places, don't go to websites, don't toy with relationships or gray areas where you know you'll only face increased temptation. Be wise, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, physically remove yourself, flee in this. And I'll tell you, this is a very helpful, practical safeguard. But clearly, that doesn't cover all temptations. So let's consider a second encouragement for enduring temptation, which requires really more of an explanation. And, and for this end, I want to look at one of the more famous temptation stories in Scripture. It's back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 39, if you want to turn there, and it's the story of Joseph, Jacob's son. And again, Joseph was the son who was sold into slavery by his brothers. It's the story here of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So the story was Joseph was eventually sold into slavery in Egypt, bought by Potiphar, who was really a captain of Pharaoh's armies. And so Potiphar over time was so impressed by Joseph, he put him in charge eventually of his entire household, a position really of significant power. And then we read this. This is what unfolded. Verse 7. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now understand, the original Hebrew, there are two Hebrew words. Literally what she said was, sex now. That blunt. Verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put me over everything that he's put me in charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said again, sex now. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. You know what he did? 
Fugo, right? That's what he did. He ran away. He vanished. Now we know this. This story gets even crazier after this, but this is what I want us to know here. I want us to look today at how Joseph resisted. How did he endure this temptation? And I'll tell you, here perhaps, I think there's a surprise. Because I think most people today, in, in fact, the ancient Greeks thought this way, Buddhists think this way, really? Modern secular psychologists often tend to think this way. Most people believe that self-control, kind of resisting temptation of any kind, is mainly a matter of the will. So most people in our day think self-control works like this. That you kind of look in your heart and you realize, well, I've got all these unhealthy pulls and desires in there. And, and so you say, okay, self-control is this. I see all these internal desires that are going to get me in trouble, so I push them down, I suppress them, and I put my will in charge of my heart. That's self-control in this perspective. And I want us to understand this. That's not what happens here in Genesis 39. Because truly, godly, biblical self-control is different than that. Because Joseph here, we looked at it, he's not looking inside himself to kind of suppress the desire he may have had for this woman. Joseph, rather, he's looking outside himself towards his desire, his hunger for God. I mean, what does Joseph say here? I mean, you look and you say, what is his ultimate argument against sleeping with this woman? And Joseph says, this is a sin against God. And, and we might respond by thinking, what do you mean? It's a sin against Potiphar. How's God in this? Well, Joseph, he mentions Potiphar here, right? But that's not his ultimate argument. Because friends, the ultimate way in which he's resisting temptation, the ultimate way he gets self-control, it's not through willpower. It's actually, as, as many others have said, through heart power. Let's be clear. It's not by looking inwardly and saying, okay, man, all these pulls, desires that are within me, okay, I, I recognize how strong they are, I recognize how they're wooing me, but I'm just going to suppress them. No, that, that's not this. Joseph, rather, he looks outside himself. He doesn't look inside and just suppress his desire for her. He looks outside himself and holds on to his desire for God. And, and saying in this, how can I trample on the God in my life? Because Joseph wanted many things, but not like he wanted God. I mean, he desired many things, but not like he desired God. And rather for Joseph, we read this story and we know the reality of his life was this. Joseph had this overmastering desire, one overmastering love and passion that put all the other desires in his heart in their proper place. So listen, please. Self-control, as scripture speaks of it, is not so much kind of the will suppressing the desires of the heart, but rather, it's all the desires of the heart being reordered. All the loves of the heart being reordered by an overmastering, passionate supreme love. That's what's going on with Joseph here. Because I'll tell you, ultimately, 
if all you try to do to endure temptation is to, okay, look inside yourself and just try to suppress the deep desires you have there, you won't be able to keep it up. Thomas Chalmers, he was a great Scottish preacher back in the 19th century. He once gave a sermon that was titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in the sermon, Chalmers points out that the only way to lessen the pull of kind of worldly desires in our lives is to have our hearts find a greater desire, an affection that is more captivating than any other desire in our lives. And I'll tell you, if that sounds too spiritual, truly, we see this principle played out regularly in our daily lives. We do. Author Alex Kraft suggests this. Let's say you have a teenage son who loves to sleep until noon during the summer. If you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> what would it take to motivate him to get out of bed at the crack of dawn? You could try some very pointed lectures warning about the dangers of laziness and extolling the virtues of discipline, but I doubt it would have much impact. However, the moment football practice starts, he's out the door by 6 a.m., his strong, seemingly unyielding desire for sleep instantly got trumped by a greater affection. Winning a football game. Is his desire to sleep gone? Not a chance. He just found something he desires more. So for us, friends, how do we endure temptation? A second encouragement. Pursue a greater affection. Would you read the phrase with me? Pursue a greater affection. Because when we focus primarily on trying to kind of squelch or eliminate our worldly desires, we'll often just find ourselves just kind of bruised, weary from the battle. And again, I know each one of us knows how strong those desires can be and how difficult it can be to get rid of them. But when our hearts are truly captivated, by the wonder and beauty of Jesus, every other desire takes a backseat to him. And you know God's word speaks to this? I mean, in the book of Psalm, the psalmist puts it beautifully in Psalm chapter 37. This is what we read in Psalm 37 in verse four, where he writes, delight yourself in the Lord, and what will he do? He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, I want to be really clear. He's not saying here, okay, if you delight yourself in the Lord, then God will be pleased. He'll give you whatever you want. He'll give you your heart's desires. All that stuff you've been longing for, he'll give it to you. No, that's not what he's saying. The psalmist is saying here, when you find delight in who God is, he in turn places his desires in your heart. He gives you, he places in your heart godly desires. I just so hope you're hearing me clearly on this. Because I am not saying you need to be more thankful and appreciative for what Jesus has done for you. I mean, that is probably true of every one of us. Probably is true. But that's not the point. The point is, really, when you begin to grasp and rest in the wonders and depths of Jesus' love for you, it reorders your desires. Think of this, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus again, he, he told them of a prayer he had for them that has an unusual focus. 
He wants that church to have power. And what does he pray they'd have power in? Signs and wonders? No, Paul says this in Ephesians 3. I pray that you, church, being rooted and established in love, that you might have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That you might know this love that surpasses knowledge and then be filled all the measure of the fullness of God. That's it. That's it. I mean, to be captivated by Christ's goodness, his mercy, his love, his eternal promises to us. I'll tell you, it opens the door for genuine transformation as we increasingly, by the work of the Spirit within us, find ourselves longing for more of him and less of you. I mean, just try to imagine, if you would, try to imagine the impact of this just on your everyday experience. I mean, how would your life be different if your heart truly was increasingly captivated and, and resting in the incredible, unending love of our God for you. You know, and let's remember this. Part of the reason we gather like this every weekend, part of the reason when we come together, we come to this word, we come to this table, is to remind us of this reality how incredible the love of God is for us, the, the wonder of it for us. That's why the writer of Hebrews puts it beautifully in Hebrews chapter three. Listen to his words or encouragement. This is Hebrews chapter three, verse one. And he says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, what are we to do? Consider Jesus. And you who have this heavenly calling, I, Consider him, perceive Jesus, reflect on Jesus, discover Jesus. Because how can we endure temptation? For one, here's an encouragement, flee from the temptation, even physically. But secondly, pursue a greater affection. And then thirdly, and again, simply this. Do just as Jesus did in the wilderness when he was tempted. And we've noticed before, but I just think it's so worth repeating that the way the Son of God faced and endured temptation was actually speaking Scripture against the temptation. So I would encourage you, use the truth. Use the sword of the Spirit. A third encouragement Scripture gives us to endure temptation is simply this. Speak and claim God's Word. Let's say it together. Speak and claim God's word. And, and I know this. <laughs> that sounds too basic, doesn't it? In some way. But I want to encourage you in this. It is not. I mean, understand this again in the Hebrews. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 4, verse 12. Understand that the word of God, it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what God's word tells us, that there's an authority that resides in, a power that rests on this living and active word that's been given to us by God himself as he prompted writers through his Holy Spirit to give us these realities and proclamations. And friends, that's one of the reasons why every time we gather, whoever's teaching as we come to the word of God declares and reminds us this is the word of God and why we collectively then say, thanks be to God. Just another way of remembering and thinking and reflecting on the reality, this word, understand, is different from any other writing we have. 
I don't know if you know the name of John Nevius. He was a devoted, fruitful missionary to China and Korea for decades. And actually, he was really one of the people who started the, the great movement of church planting in Korea that took Korea from 0.1% of Christians in the country to 25 to 35% Christians in the country, just within a matter of decades. And as you might imagine, I mean, John experienced, he encountered just an abundance of vivid spiritual warfare, demonic possessions, demonic oppressions on the mission field. And after decades of ministry in this spiritual battling, he wrote this. In the early days, I used to do hocus pocus. I used to exercise. I used to draw rings around. I used to say in the blood of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, which aren't bad things. But one day, he writes, I just took out the Bible and started reading the scripture out loud. I just started declaring the truth. And boom. He writes, I saw exponentially more powerful results than ever before. And we said, why would that be? Hebrews 4.12, because the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It discerns, really understand, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And, and that's why this weekend we have an insert in your worship folder. Can you pull this one out, if you have that in there, and just take a look at it? And I want you to know we're going to have more of these available next weekend when we gather. It will also be on our website this week if you want to get another copy of it. But if you want another question, okay, so what do we do with this? Can I encourage you to keep this in your Bible or, or somewhere where it's handy, readily available to you through the week? And then I'd encourage you with this. When battling temptation, read a verse or verses of scripture out loud against the temptation. Can I encourage you? Don't just think the scripture. Actually speak it. In fact, even better, maybe you want to memorize maybe one or two of the verses here so you'll always have scripture ready at hand to be able to speak it. In fact, one of the verses listed here is our text today, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And remember and declare, no temptation has overtaken me that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let me be tempted beyond my ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that I may be able to endure it. Okay, so... Is quoting scripture some kind of cure-all, you're saying, Clyde? If I say scripture out loud, will the temptation kind of immediately cease? Likely not. Because it didn't cease immediately for Jesus in the wilderness, right? He faced one temptation after another. But every time, every time the Son of God responded to the temptation by doing what? speaking scripture against the temptation. That's how God in the flesh endured temptation. And I can tell you personally, and even just from this past week again, as I felt the temptation, really an attitude just kind of annoyingly rising up within me. And again, I, I don't know the source of that temptation. I don't know if it was primarily because of the world or my own flesh or the enemy actually working against me. But again, just reminded from my study in the scripture again this week, what I did, I just declared, I quoted out loud God's word. And that day was 1 John 4, 4 that was on my mind, listed here as well, and just quoted out, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. 
And I totally realize this. I know that perhaps there are psychological, physiological reasons for some of the effectiveness of doing that. But I tell you, I can say, even as on other occasions, it's like there's a clarity that comes. And for me, in some way, kind of a, a breaking of some of the strength of the temptation as I actually spoke God's word and just kept repeating it out loud. And so friends, I just want to encourage you in this. How do you endure the temptation that might be in the forefront of your mind right now? For one, flee when you encounter the temptation. Secondly, pursue a greater affection in Christ. And then thirdly, let me encourage you, speak and claim God's word. Amen? So how fittingly then, that as a community gathered in the name of Jesus, we come now to our greater affections. I mean, we come now to him in the table of communion. And we now come because we're a physical, tangible people, and we come to the physicality of this meal. And along with men and women of faith, we break the bread and remember the body of Christ was broken for us. And likewise, we take a cup and we'll pass cups to each of us. And remember the reality, the blood of Christ was poured out for us. And Father, we would ask in these elements, would you feed us in Christ today? And so as we come, even as we spoke of last week, again, we come to this meal, and, and there are three elements in some way. For one, we remember in it, right? We remember what Christ has done for us, fittingly. But also, we receive in this meal. There's a way in which, by the Spirit, we're fed spiritually as we come to communion. And then thirdly, though, we proclaim in this meal. Proclaim his death until he comes. And we're not just proclaiming one another. As we looked at last weekend, as we receive this meal, we are proclaiming the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places the sufficiency of Jesus' death on our behalf. Amen? So let me pray, and let's come. So Father, we come now with thanksgiving for your grace, praying in these areas of temptation of which we are so aware in our lives that you would guide us by your strength through the empowering of your Holy Spirit to pursue you. So even now, we are coming to this table, Father, wanting to increase our affection for you. So please, feed us in it as we remember, as we proclaim your goodness, your grace, your mercy in Jesus Christ, our King. And all God's people say, amen.